And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, Streaming and 3CR Digital, Podcast or Audio On Demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. Hope you're all travelling okay in this new COVID-19 world. Remember to wash your hands and keeping 1.5 metre distance from each other, keeping your journey outside to a minimum. Solidarity Breakfast is being produced remotely. That just means I am collecting material at home, putting it together using the marvellous equipment made possible by the digital age and getting to the airwaves through the tremendous work being done by our station workers. More strength to their arms. Before we kick off, I wanted to let you know about some of the messages coming out of the union movement. First up... Let's listen to what the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia, have sent out on Wednesday. They sent out a release and it's entitled Maritime Union Commits to Keep the Maritime Industry Moving. And it says that Australians are being urged not to panic about supplies of essential goods with the Maritime Union of Australia saying wharfies, seafarers and port workers are committed to ensuring supply chains continue to operate smoothly despite the COVID-19 pandemic. The MUA is seeking an urgent meeting with the federal government and industry representatives to develop a comprehensive plan to address the impacts of COVID-19 on maritime supply chain. With more than 90% of Australian exports arriving by sea, including essential medical supplies, household items, fuel, ensuring shipping and stevedoring continue operating safely will be vital to prevent the current health and economic crisis being exacerbated by the breakdown of supply chains. And the union set forwards demands that support the global call from the International Transport Workers Federation for governments and employers to act to maintain sustainable supply chains and protect workers vital to COVID-19 response. The MUA National Secretary and the ITF President Patty Crumlin said the current health crisis has revealed how precarious Australia's supply chains had become, with all container ships and fuel tankers delivering international supplies to the country now foreign-owned and operated. Maritime supply chains are integral to keeping Australia moving, with everything from medical supplies and fuel to essential household items arriving at port around the country, Ms Cumberland said. That is why we are urging the federal government to immediately meet with industry and union representatives to develop procedures and policies that ensure our maritime supply aren't cut. We are seeking additional resources be made available immediately to allow the mandatory pre-entry inspection of all vessels entering Australian ports, along with vital health and welfare checks for international crew members. 
Workers must be provided with unlimited pay lead if they need to be self-isolated or care for themselves, children and other relatives to ensure a lack of leave doesn't result in people working when it is not safe to do so, potentially exposing others to this virus. Mr Crumlin said employers also had a significant role to play both in the provision of appropriate health and safety measures and by ensuring incoming support so that no worker is financially disadvantaged. So they're seeking paid leave for all workers while they await COVID-19 testing, along with unlimited paid leave. Employers must conduct regular toolbox meetings, he said, to provide clear and up-to-date health and safety advice to workers on how they are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and the implementation of additional cleaning and decontamination measures on site along with the provision of suitable PPE, personal protective equipment, where workers are near each other, must happen. Proper consultation with workplace health and safety committees and workers' elected health and safety representatives should take place in a regular and ongoing manner to enable emerging risks are quickly identified and appropriate measures put in place. So that's from the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia. The... um, CFMEU Textile, Clothing and Footwear TCF Division sent out this release calling on the government saying that using Australian manufacturing workers to produce critical medical items will not only save lives but jobs if government gets it right. And they said this, the Textile, Clothing and Footwear Workers' Union is calling on Prime Minister Scott Morrison to deliver on his promise to protect lives and livelihoods by ensuring Australian manufacturing workers are deployed to produce critical medical supplies and personal protective equipment to Australian governments. Local manufacturers have indicated to the union that they can save jobs by immediately transitioning their production away from clothes to in-demand products like surgical gowns, face masks, clinical waste bags and waste bag closure devices, which the Commonwealth is seeking. The Commonwealth Department of Industry put out a request for information about Australian industry's capability to supply these products 10 days ago, and Australian industry is ready to start production now. In order for jobs to be saved, all the government needs to do is provide local manufacturers the specifications and orders and production can immediately start, said the TCF Sector Secretary of the Manufacturing Division of the Construction, Forestry, Maritime, Mining and Energy Union, Jenny Kershaw. Using existing TCF supply chains, capabilities, skills and manufacturers' expertise is the most efficient and effective way to deliver these vital supplies allowing medical professionals to get on with their jobs, and if done right, it will save jobs, Ms Kershaw said. The union has been in contact with the Commonwealth and several state governments and tried to confirm their growing requirements for medical supplies. Uh, Workers in the industry are ready to play their part by using their skills to ensure the vital supply of quality products. They just need to be provided the chance, she said. And finally, a word from the United Workers' Union. United Workers' Union, the early childhood union, says that hygiene and safety must be improved and increased in centres or they should be shut down to protect young children and educators. The union has released a six-point plan to provide clear and strong rules for early childhood education and care and urges the National Cabinet to adopt this plan when they meet. 
The sector has been thrown into chaos from lack of leadership from the federal government, the union says, and can no longer wait for action. There can be no further delays on decisions to help centres continue to operate during the COVID-19 crisis. Urgent funding is needed to support centres as they can put measures in place now. And the union asks include temperature checks upon arrival, increased personal protective equipment for staff and adequate time for increased cleaning and hygiene implementation because early childhood educators cannot practice social distancing with very young children. Extreme measures must be taken. The centres that cannot meet the six-point plan should be shut down. United Workers' Union plan for the centres include pre-entry screening. Every child must have their temperature taken by an educator in the foyer of the centre before being admitted every single day they access the centre. The child must have a temperature reading no higher than 37.5 degrees. If it is higher than that, the child will be refused access to the centre and the parents will be told to take the child home. The educator conducting the pre-entry screening must be covered in appropriate PPE. That includes a duck mask as well as gloves. Adequate PPE before a centre is opened up each morning to receive children, it must be satisfied that it has enough personal protective equipment for the next 48-hour period as a minimum. This includes antibacterial soap, disposable gloves, duck masks, thermometers, sterilising equipment, cleaning detergent and disinfectant, cleaning mops and buckets, antibacterial floor cleaner, toilet paper and nappies. If the centre does not have enough PPE, it should not open and receive any children until such time as it does. Adequate cleaning. High traffic areas of the centre must be comprehensively cleaned every two hours. Doorknobs, handrails, coded door entries, exit buttons, etc. Every toy and every surface must be comprehensively cleaned two times per day. At the end of each day, after the last child leaves, the entire centre, including all objects and services, must be comprehensively cleaned. Adequate staffing. Additional staff must be rostered to be available to do the cleaning. Educators cannot be responsible for doing deep cleaning and care and educate the children in their room at the same time. Hygiene. Educators and children must have hand washers washed on entry to the centre before and after consuming food and drink, after going to the bathroom, after cleaning children's faces, before and after playing with toys and on the hour every hour. Staggered times. Children's starting and finishing times must be staggered to enable social distancing and transitional meal times must be observed. If a COVID-19 infection does happen in a centre, every parent and educator must be informed immediately. The centre must be shut down immediately. All relevant departments and regulatory bodies must be notified. A registered industrial cleaning company must be brought in to do a comprehensive clean of the centre to make sure it is virus-free. All educators and children must undergo a COVID-19 test to ensure they are virus-free. Only once the above is done, may a centre reopen centres to comply and follow the advice of the relevant health department. My great uncles were ordinary men 
They fought in the First World War Left a wife and children When the army came to call They were sectioned at Gallipoli Stood on the Turkish shore All around so many young faces Some didn't come back at all When freedom called Those wounded men and women stood tall When freedom called Oh God, is there nothing left at all? When freedom called Garden came from Framlingham. He fought in the Second World War. A full-grown man, but not citizen. He couldn't vote under the law. They sectioned him in Gundich Murray country on the Western District shore. Drafted as an MP. Uphold the army's law When freedom called Those Gunditch men and women stood tall When freedom called Oh God, is there nothing left at all? When freedom Sit there quiet Go drifting in their minds It seemed to me They could see the spirits Of the ones they left behind They fought for more Than just their homeland They fought for respect To walk down a road Like any other man Lest we forget When freedom called Those Murrah men and women stood tall When freedom called Oh God, is there nothing left at all? When freedom called Those good of the men and women stood tall When freedom comes. Hi, this is Liz Stringer, and you're listening to the Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. 
One of the worrying aspects of the COVID-19 arrival on our shores has been the strange lack of practical skills shown not by experts or workers or even state governments. The federal government seems to be full of ministers who have never had to actually organise anything. I know it is a tough time and scary, but when they announced on Sunday the complete closure of venues and restaurants, they were completely amazed at the long lines appearing outside Centrelink offices on the Monday. One, they didn't seem to appreciate the level of casualisation of our workforce, which they've been actively involved in. They haven't, they haven't stopped that flow. In fact, many of their policies have encouraged it. They don't seem to be realising how many people have insecure work and that the online MindGov system being used to field new applications for social security would crash under the increased load. I found out something interesting looking into this, that actually the online social security system came out of early work done in around 2004, just for a situation like a pandemic, when people would need assistance but need to stay away from personal contact. Anyway, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union has been telling the federal government for a while now about the problems of capacity with the system. The minister in charge apparently tried to blame a cyber attack, which you do when you want to divert attention from ordinary practical breakdowns. He also did this without checking first, another example of incompetent thinking, I would venture to say. Anyway, the positives out of this is that something has to be done. I spoke to Ollie from the Melbourne branch of the AUWU, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, uh, for his thoughts on the situation and what's happening on his side of the wall. So you're a member of uh, the Unemployed Workers Union and uh, we're in the midst of what's called the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, For people who are on um, social security and have been looking for work, uh, it's not unusual to have problems with Centrelink, but we're now seeing over a million people being thrown onto unemployment since Monday and the rest of Australia is beginning to realise just how uh, unserviced that area of our government really is. Is that your impression? Yeah, that's right. Um, so this is really the straw that broke the camel's back. Like, um, for people that have been on Social Security all this time, we know that the um, the online and offline component of the Centrelink system has been, it's already been working completely over capacity. Uh, The website, before all of this, the website was crashing all the time and it was, it took several weeks up to several months to get your Centrelink payment if you were applying for a new payment. Um, So it's not unusual at all that because there's a huge spike in unemployment now that the website's crashing and we've got these several kilometre lines outside Centrelink. It's interesting too because uh, the um, Minister for Social Security confidently said that uh, uh, people were, that there was a close down of uh, bars and uh, uh, recreation areas and other places like that which are full of... Uh, casual employees uh, uh, who have no um, uh, fallback position 
they they were told overnight that they were all going to be shut down and he had said that he was totally taken by surprise by the uh, insufficiency of the system. Yeah, well, they should have listened to us. <laughs> We've been saying all along that this system is broken. We need not only a raise a new start, but we need more money going into just the services that get people on payments and all of that, like the um, the hotline and the online component of like the MyGov. It, they just needed to increase capacity all along. And look, the people in the lines, like they're doing the best they can to keep their distance and they're wearing masks. It's just that they, they've had no other option. They don't know often that it's the first time they've been unemployed and had to collect benefits and they don't know what to do. So they go to Centrelink. Um, so for anyone that is, has been made unemployed, um, don't go to Centrelink in person. You should start the um, application online. Hopefully, I went on the website today and it's, seems to be okay so if you go to mygov you my.gov.au um you create an account and you uh you link the center link service and then you start an online application that's the best way to do it at the and, moment uh, i've heard that you've been getting calls from people uh early on uh, around this these issues what about people who are already on social security how are they being affected by this so what we've got is a pretty patchwork response. Um, so they have reduced the mutual obligation requirements, but they haven't removed them. So I don't see why people should still be going to work for the doll. And I got a call through the uh, hotline the other day of someone that was being forced to go to a one of these cert two training activities where 22 people were packed in a room a very small room in one of these job active places now, what the government should be doing is eliminating all mutual obligation requirements so that's work that's the the job search in-person meetings everything and effectively these job active places which aren't essential at all we've known they've done nothing for us in the past they should all just be shut down so that's what we're advocating for at the moment it's interesting because uh, uh minister rushton she said when there was this uh, lineup of people outside centrelink she goes oh they need to ring up and they need to go online completely unaware of the insufficiency and it's, it's similar yeah. to this business about uh, uh, the general health and the need to shut, uh, you know, keep out of each other's way so that uh, the pandemic can actually, uh, we can try and, uh, uh, you know, make the curve, the virus curve go down. Um, but what they seem to be, the government seems to be very unaware of their constituents the actual practicalities of ordinary mm. people. Um, 
you've been experiencing that for a long time, haven't you? Where they actually don't like to talk to people who are actually affected by their policies. Yeah, totally. Like sometimes I talk to ACOS, um, and they're, they're all right. ACOS are great. Um, but we've just for several years, we've been finding that um, when we've um, put together this organization, um, we've been finding that the media and, and um, Centrelink as well have been reluctant to consult with us, um, even though we're the, the main organization that represent unemployed people. We're made up of unemployed people. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not surprising, but it, it's really frustrating. Have you ever heard anything more in this turmoil about the cashless welfare debit card? Yeah, well, they're not going to... Uh, the, the government's plan is to keep that going. Um, look, this really isn't a time for these stupid experiments. Uh, the cashless welfare card was an awful idea in the first place. It was the, that guy Twiggy Forrest that came up with that. Um, this, this card was implemented first as a racist policy against First Nations people, um, targeting basically just remote Aboriginal communities. And just before this outbreak, they've wanted to expand it to just about everyone and I'm trying to roll that out. This is just not the time to bring in an expansion of cashless welfare. Um, but for people that are still on it, this, it's just going to add to the stress of being unemployed at this time. I was interested because um, with so many new and uninitiated people uh, being thrown onto the social uh, safety net, which is what it's supposed to be, uh, do you think that there might be some changes? Because, I mean, when I was talking to... We've been talking to people about the cashless debit card and... Uh, one person said something very interesting. She said a lot of these people have never been, uh, had been under govern government control like this before and they don't understand why they need mm. to be. Now, a whole lot of the people who have never been unemployed before or have been keeping their head above water, like there's been people, you know, who've been interviewed who said that they work two jobs, they work seven days a week and uh, they tried to do it all online but it crashed and so that's why they came to the line because all these frustrations uh, are uh, being experienced by these uninitiated people. Do you think that there might be finally people beginning to listen to how cranky the system's become? Yeah, I think so. And I think this is our time to strike now um, because what's happening is there, there's a global event that's proving that you need a robust social security system. Now, before this, um, the government was fine with around 5% to 10% of the population being in a precarious situation because that's what the Reserve Bank recommended for a good economy. Now we've got unemployment that's biking out of control because it has to for health and it looks like we're going to need the government to 
expand Social Security so it's uh, at a livable rate. Otherwise, we're going to have widespread precarity like we've had in the Great Depression. I wasn't alive at the Great Depression, but I know it was pretty bad. And if they don't do that, well, you know what happens? We revolt. Now, that's, 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 that's what they have to, they have to make that decision pretty fast. And they, they should start listening to us and listening to what we're saying. Otherwise, they're going to have a lot of trouble. Have you, have you uh, had any uh, talks around the uh, increase in New Start? The, apparently, they've changed the name of New Start to Job something or other. It's obviously New Start's now become too much of a uh, hot issue for them, so they've changed it to some other name. <laughs> job job Seeker yeah, well, or something. I can't remember what it's called. I read it today. I think it's a conspiracy to make us have to um, paint all new banners. Uh, it's really hard to write Job Seeker on a banner. Um, new Start was getting catchy. Um, so, yeah. But, it's, it, I mean, the name change is fine. The, the issue is that the supplement is... So, it's yes, they're raising New Start, but only for six months. And they're not in, they're not, uh, giving the supplement. So the, recently they were only giving the supplement to, um, a few different groups. So they were excluding people that are studying and people on the, the disability pension. They've recently gone, okay, we're going to have people on the study allowance, but pe for people who are on the DSP, the disability pension, they've, they're still not getting that allowance that um, extra extra boost to their Centrelink. Um, so it'll be, what we'll be fighting for at the moment is for the people on DSP to get that boost. Um, but it'll be interesting situation when that six months is up, whether they can actually just cut people's payments to below the poverty line and whether people will just be like, oh, okay, you can do that. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think people are going to be really angry. Because it's about $40 a day extra. So it's about $230-something more, right? A fortnight? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the raise actually brings it up to a livable level, which is good. Um, but we've also got a situation where we are going to enter a big, big recession. And it's a weird kind of recession where grocery prices are going right up. I don't know where the rent prices are going to go up or down at this point. Um, but we really do need that extra money because we don't know what's going to happen with the economy. And also, can you give me some impression of your feelings around the uh, bailouts, that the large amounts of money that the uh, government's been giving to different businesses uh, Qantas comes to mind, and they're beginning to not look like uh, uh, shoring up business to maintain economy. It, they look more and more like bailouts, and uh, the employees are being sacked, and they are expect they're, they're expected to take um, their annual leave or anything like that. That's if they've got it. Uh, so it's an example of working class people having to pay for the pandemic, effectively. Yeah, totally. And it's a way of propping up this um, 
this system of shareholder ownership that doesn't work in a crisis. Well, it's like if if um, if private shareholders owning these pretty key industries, like we're we're talking about, like like this is an airline that used to be owned by owned by the public. Like what should be happening is the all these key industries like energy and also supermarkets they should be put back or for energy we should have a, a nationalized retailer we should have a big buyback of housing and have public housing and i think coles and woolies should be owned by the public and controlled by the community because these are essential services. We need these to survive, and it, we can't trust and we can't risk shareholders running them as they please. Uh, what's uh, the general feeling amongst the people that you you know and uh, amongst the uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union in regards to uh, uh, where we go from here? Because it's actually quite a depressing period, and uh, some people. I mean, I've just been reading articles around uh, the uh, the virus itself, and it's expected that it's actually seriously. I don't know about the lockdown, but seriously, it's it's a period of twelve months that we're looking at. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're kind of getting really busy. <laughs> um, we're having video, several video chats a week. Um, which has been fun, but um, what we're going to be doing is expanding our advocacy as much as we can. So that's like our hotline that I'll give the hotline number one sec. Um, and we're kind of just working out what to do. This is a really weird situation where, you know, back in the day we could um, talk about protests, like talk about in-person protests, but we can't really do that. Um, so we're, we're trying to work out how we can organize in this situation. The, the thing is, there's a, so much interest in this kind of stuff at the moment that we're expecting to get a lot of people also interested. Um, so if you want to get involved, um, if, you're, if you're in Melbourne, give me an email. I've got um, the email Vic at auwu.org.au, um, checking that every day. And for uh, the hotline, let's, let's get that out. So I'm pretty sure the hotline is a one uh, 800 auwu and the number four, and then U. Okay. And, and of course, the Unemployed Workers Union is actually the Australian Unemployed Workers Union is Australian wide. It's national, so there are places in other parts yeah, of the country yeah. as well. The, the um, uh, the um, issue of uh, maintaining um, people's uh, morale. That's what. What? How are you going about that? Because it's really quite disheartening in a sense. Yeah, well, um, everyone's kind of going about it in a different way, I guess. Um, I've sort of just been enjoying um, calling friends every day and um, 
like playing music and that kind of thing and having hobbies and having kind of video chat. I mean, like the last video chat, we just wore wigs um, and like, you know, our meetings now go on for three hours where the last two is just kind of us hanging out on video. <laughs> So that's actually quite nice. Um, oh, I was just going to say, actually, you might be leading the charge because uh, uh, people who have had to deal with uh, quite a lot of stress as well as uh, extra time uh, become experts at um, enjoying life yeah. in a way. Yeah, like it's like everyone's come to my level now. <laughs> I'm really good at staying at home and just just do my own thing. And buying very cheaply. <laughs> it's kind of fun, however. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're we're um you know we're the experts. So if you want to advise, just um yeah, throw me an email. <laughs> Thanks for talking to me today, Ollie. You're back with Annie on our first remotely tailored Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, covering issues during the COVID-19 stay-at-home. One of the things I was going to do over the last week was go to the book launch of Bernard Collery's book, Oil Under Troubled Water. It was going to be at the Nova Cinema and launched by former Victorian Premier Steve Brax. It is all about the resources being taken from the Timor Sea and the skullduggery involved in cheating the East Timorese and ultimately the Australian people. In lieu of the book launch, I was able to have a chat with Bernard Collery, which I will play to you in a minute. But first, I need to give you some background. Bernard Collery is in fact facing prosecution with a possible jail term of 10 years under the post 9-11 intelligence laws charged with communicating secret intelligence information to the government of Timor-Leste between May 2008 to May 2013, and to ABC journalists. Now, Bernard Collery is a Canberra lawyer who in a past life was the Deputy Chief Minister and Attorney-General for the ACT. He has also been the first Secretary of the Australian Embassy in Paris. These are pretty illustrious credentials, and ones which are probably the reason he was the lawyer assigned to the case of a former Australian Secret Intelligence Service operative who was involved in bugging the East Timorese government building during Australia's negotiations over petroleum resources in the Timor Sea. This person is called Witness K and he's he's facing other his own charges for uh, divulging secret information that's supposed to be uh, of national significance. And while the Timor-Leste government took the case of unfair dealing over the revealing, over the revealed bugging to the International Court in The Hague, the charges of, of divulging secrets against the national interests were not pursued. It is only now that Christian Porter, the Attorney-General, after that case was settled out of court in effect, has started pursuing the case against Bernard Collery. This new book, Oil Under Travel Water, published by Melbourne University Press, is particularly explosive with new allegations that start with helium. But I'll let Bernard tell the story. Uh, Annie, it's a long corporate story, and really the discovery is a very sinister one at the end of a long story of government 
very close uh, working with uh, international corporate entities. Um, we go back to the 1972 OPEC petroleum crisis when access to Middle Eastern petroleum products was temporarily halted uh, during the um, Israeli-Middle East uh, conflict. And Australia became very nervous about our total dependence on overseas supplies of petroleum products. And we commenced a massive search for petrol and oil within Australia's territorial boundaries. In that search, we went across the right boundaries and we went into waters that belonged at that time to Portugal and Indonesia. The Indonesian issue was settled uh, at about the same time on a uh, proper boundary, median boundary line, but no boundary was settled with Portugal over Portuguese then Timor. Australia continued to encroach on Portuguese territorial waters. The Portugal started to protest and then Australia joined with Indonesia in taking occupation by proxy, Australia by proxy, of uh, East Timor. At the same time, as Indonesia became an occupier of East Timor, an unlawful occupier in breach of uh, the United Nations Charter, particularly Article 2, um, unprovoked aggression, Australia became an occupier, not many Australians realise this, Australia became an occupier of the seabed resources of East Timor with Indonesia. It, it made a unlawful treaty in 1989 with Indonesia, and in working that treaty, Australia worked very closely with international corporate entities. All through those 20-odd years of exploration activity, Australia funded, resourced, and gave away for nothing, effectively nothing, except for some licence exploration fees, all the value and intellectual property of the Australian paid exploration on the continental shelf uh, uh, that goes almost all the way to the Timorese coast. Timor is an island uplifted on the Australian continental shelf where the Australian shelf goes beneath the Asian plate. It's a tectonic zone north of Timor. But always it was fairly clear and recorded in Australia's own geological archives, um, which are immense and world-leading. It was always recorded that there were, there were no two shelves there. There was just one shelf that Timor was riding on. And by international law... Australia, uh, and by a whole variety of other case studies in the international court, Australia had no right to go past a midline on that shelf to East Timor. So what, but so it what authorised saying, the. What you're saying is that Australian, the Australian government or the Australian interests were quite clear about what they were doing. Oh, indeed. Australia worked with Woodside Petroleum and ConocoPhillips, as if those two entities were part of the Australian government. It's extraordinary that um, 
uh, and revealed recently under parliamentary privilege by one of the Australian legal advisors, Professor Andrew Surdy, that Australia made available drafts of these treaty documents to Woodside Petroleum's lawyers and executives to peruse and agree and assist. And they were working hand in glove in this unlawful enterprise with corporate entities. Unlawful because it offended international law. But the unlawfulness became worse after Independent East Timor agreed to form a joint petroleum development authority with Australia. So an agency, an Australian authority, established by Parliament, called the Joint Petroleum Development Authority, was established. That authority uh, was the legal basis for a joint venture between the newly independent East Timor and Australia. In those agreements, um, it's in your book, you actually talk about the aggressive and misrepresentation of uh, the Australian lawyers in the treaty uh, process, where they misrepresent what was actually available there. Well, yes, it was a joint petroleum development venture, and the definition of petroleum in the document signed by the Timorese was changed from any other definition of petroleum around the world. The words and inerts were taken out of the definition of petroleum. But the liquid natural gas contains not just hydrocarbons, but it also contains a very, very valuable gas called helium. It doesn't always contain that gas, but the geolocal nature of the Timor Shelf, as we'll call it, uh, meant there was a massive quantity of helium under that shelf, under that granite vast granite dome and Australia deceived uh, Timor by not revealing in the joint venture lawyers will understand what I mean by fiduciary breach uh, that helium was equally valuable to gas an equal prize and Australia gave that prize in circumstances that require investigation by the Australian National Audit Office and the Australian Federal Police, Australia gave that prize helium away entirely to the operator, contractor, ConocoPhillips and the other contractor parties. The vast value of that helium, which almost equals all of the gas being taken from the uh, resource, Bayou Yuzan resource, has been given away. Now, just think of what hospital beds... Think of what um, pre free preschool education and childcare Australia could have had from between 12 and $22 billion worth of helium gas given away by the Howard Downer government to foreign enterprise. That's the real scandal. That's the culmination of the scandal that's been going on for 30, 40 years in the Timor Sea. So Any. This doesn't just affect East Timor, this affects Australia, Australians. Well, every Australian lost that revenue. Every Australian. And nowhere in the parliamentary statements by the Minister Downer and the comments uh, made by our Prime Minister of the day, John Howard, 
is there any mention of helium recovery and the giving away of that resource. Mind you, most of it was being taken unlawfully because the shares were unequal and tainted. Um, so this is a massive fraud on the Australian and Timorese people. And uh, who is going to answer for it? Who is going to answer for billions upon billions of dollars given away without the approval of Parliament? Now, what, what, the what small... Role, what role did Alexander Downer play in all this? Because he was there throughout well, the entire Well, Alexander time. Downer was the Foreign Minister of the day, and um, that, uh, that's a matter... Uh, for inquiry and investigation. Okay. I mean, I know that you can't speak to uh, the upcoming uh, uh, trial that's coming up in April. Uh, do you think that it will be in public court? Because uh, part of the things that you're talking about in your book are actually about the confusion between national interests and the commercial interests of uh, major international corporations, which seem to be, uh, those two things seem to have become blurred. Well, Australia's put a cloak over this story by using the terrorist laws we passed after 9-11 in the name of combating terrorism. Uh, they've used those laws against myself and Witness K to put a cloak of secrecy over this scandal as some commentators have said, Australia's greatest political scandal. Now, with the, corona, with the virus issue at the moment, I accept that Australians have got their ears tuned otherwise. But um, no amount of cloaking will stop the trial of myself becoming really. The real trial is the trial of the issues that I'm speaking of, and it's for the courts and the Australian people to decide whether we will allow a cloak to be put over uh, this scandal in the name of so-called national security. If there was any national security issue involved, it was that the helium was a critical commodity. We didn't have helium in Australia and it's required for health and MRI imaging. It's required for nuclear reactors. It's required on a vast number of areas and if there was any national interest it was that we should have reported in the parliament that helium had been found was accessible and there was a joint venture underway with um east timor to recover the helium instead the helium was given away in circumstances that have to be explained and i expect that my trial will involve a trial of that issue it must involve a trial of the scandal regarding the giving away of the helium and I'm unable to address and tell the Australian people the connection between my trial and the helium scandal. I'm forbidden by that anti-terrorist law. Now tell me, um, because of the virus, uh, your um, tour to launch your book has been um, stymied. Um, what what are you doing? What what's your next move? Well, I, I'm uh, I'm, I'm uh, taking care of my family and myself, my grandchildren. We are um, 
uh, under threat. Uh, uh, our general public health is under threat. And the series of book launches were an opportunity for Australians to know that our democracy as well was under threat. Um, the timing was good straight after the sports wrought, blatant sports rotting prior to an election. If the Russians had done the sports rotting, we'd all be up in arms. But it wasn't the Russians. It was our own government. Now, our, the book launches were going to reveal something far, far, far more sinister that had been worked on the Australian people. And that story is yet to feature in Australian minds. But as we run out of hospital beds, perhaps, and as uh, we realise that money could have, could have provided, I'm told by an economist friend, free preschool education in this country for years upon years, uh, we could have been a, a developed Western democracy like the Scandinavian countries and provided and assisted young couples with uh, preschool and childcare. We gave all that money away to enormously wealthy foreign corporations. We also gave the gas away at up to one-third the price we're domestically paying for gas. The whole management of the Timor Sea gas, petroleum, Healy issue is a vast, scandalous exercise in poor governance, poor economic planning by the Howard Downer government. How can people get a copy of your book? It's, uh, it's published by Melbourne University Press, and um, as far as I know, it's available on Amazon and other booklets, and local booksellers have it. I think it's sold out in some places, which speaks volumes for the community interest, despite the coronavirus, in uh, the non-working of our Australian democracy at the moment. But there's a day of reckoning coming, and the closer I am brought to my trial, the closer the day of reckoning in open court for the Howard Downer government. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when as the government empties the public purse into the coppers of the super-efficient private sector, it has struck a perfect balance between the handouts to its corporate mates, that is, the deserving not poor, and handouts to the undeserving poor, with the latest package providing a mere $163 billion of our hard-earned to the deserving not poor, and a massive $24 billion to the undeserving, a mere 7-1 ratio, a tiny 87.5% to the, to the uh, not deserving non-poor, and a super generous 12.5% 12 to the undeserving. When we know the deserving not poor is in such economic pain, why they told us so, and in fact tell us so by the day. And unlike the uncouth undeserving, the sophisticated men and women of enterprise of the greatest little economic order of them all are just thankful and appreciative of their little handouts like Virgin on Poverty Airlines after the government handed the poor struggling airline 715 mil, which was an earlier handout to the aforementioned 163 mil, incidentally, or 163 bill. We may need more, more, much more, it expressed its gratitude for the public gift. 
Heaven forbid that the big virgin on poverty supremo, the ever-smiling, happy, 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 very Richard Brand sign, might have to flog off one of his mansions across the globe like Lake Como, for instance. The small business lobby complained the stimulus package was too little, too late. And poor construction giant John Hilton, um, John uh, Hole in our profits land said it was not sustainable despite the stimulus. And the US of based international Hilton hotel chain said it needed a government boost and is so concerned about its workers whom it so cares about and sadly sadly has to let go declared the government must come to their rescue see thankful for small mercies unlike the greedy undeserving who queue up day after day wanting to bludge on the public purse day after day the same people in the same spot, given their greed, has forced the whole system to collapse online and on street, thanks to that extraordinarily competent minister, Stuart Rabbit. And isn't he one of the great ministerial success stories? Stewie told us the crash was due to hackers, presumably by evil China or evil Russia or evil Iran, rampant criminals, or all three, probably all three, before announcing he had unearthed the real culprit himself. Given he's in the ministry, what's it say about the others? Uh, thank goodness the deserving filthy rich don't have to queue up in static queues to have the much-deserved public coppers in their coppers. Despite our occasional criticism, perhaps from envy, it's times like this when we have to admit, thank goodness for capitalism, for the greatest little economic order of them all, for its constant fight against anything that looks remotely like socialism, like, say, depending on the public purse in a crisis. No, this crisis has revealed the strength of capitalism, as the Business Profits Council's Jennifer Worcester Cost Workers wrote this week, business is the glue that keeps communities together and keeps the economy going. Beautiful sentiments, and we're seeing how selflessly it's keeping the economy going at the moment. Although, to be fair to Jennifer, the glue does seem to be melting a little. But in gluing the community together and keeping the economy growing, she said, companies are being as flexible as possible to keep staff safe. They are paying staff, including casuals, and taking steps to retain staff. See workers, ungrateful, lazy, avaricious workers, yet all they care about. Although it does seem Jennifer hasn't, and we assume it's because she's so busy trying to juggle the runny glue, put it back together, the pieces dripping everywhere, does seem Jennifer hasn't popped down to the doll office lately to see the static cues of the workers' good old capitalism is taking steps to retain. But the most incisive comment has come from the Institute of Public, very, very private affairs giant mind, John Rustcan, who wrote, the public will realise many of the things the politicians have spent the past decade talking about are irrelevant, climate change being the most obvious example. And good news, the Institute is publishing a book later this year telling the truth about climate change, which isn't climate change. And that should be a must-read. Anyway, John went on, The crisis will make a few other things crystal clear. It will reveal what everyone has always known about the industrial relations system, namely that its primary purpose is to increase the wages and conditions of those in work. True Blue Aussie's industrial relations system, which includes which includes us having literally the world's highest minimum wage, does nothing to encourage employment. 
that's part of John's deep analysis of the coronavirus. And of course, we've always known the industrial relations system is to increase wages and conditions by as little as possible. See, there's the problem. Wages. Wages cost jobs. Get rid of wages and crippling conditions and everyone would have a job. John didn't mention, unfortunately, because his view would be invaluable, why the glue that keeps the community together is melting and the greatest little economic order of them all is dependent on the dread, bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector. Why government intervention, red tape and green tape, which are destroying the economy, are now essential for the economy, for the greatest little economic order. A like-minded thinker, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, real name, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, is international business editor of London's Daily Telegraph. And Ambrose wrote an insightful piece under the headline, Unshackle Central Banks to Save Capitalism. In other words, save the super-efficient with the bloated inefficient, so that we can restore the world to normal. But then, if the glue that binds communities needs the inefficient to bail it out every time, then why not just retain the inefficient and ditch the... Oh, no, 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 perish the thought. Wash your mouth out, Kevin. Elsewhere, I know we've been a little critical of US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor at times. But this week, nothing but praise for his innate sensitivity trying to protect his people over the coronavirus, more correctly, the Chinese virus. Remember how he declared it was fake news and an evil, rusky Sino-Iranian plot announcing that the fake news which didn't exist would be mild and would be over in no time and people had nothing to worry about because he had the fake news that didn't exist under control? And I think we were even a bit critical of that doesn't exist, does exist contradiction, but now we know it was a deliberate plan to prevent panic. Sensitive, caring Donald, because this week Donald said he was the first person in the whole world to know it was a pandemic. I knew it was a pandemic long before they declared it a pandemic. The omniscient commander-in-chief of the free world told his subjects with his trademark modesty. The greatest no before ever, ever. Despite that, Donald now says the worst is over and um, we should be back to normal in no time, no later than Easter, an assertion challenged by a number of medical experts, but, but what would they know? They didn't even know it was a pandemic before it was a pandemic. If only they had Donald's commitment to truth and accuracy, like that shot of his speech notes which showed he had scratched out corona and scribbled in Chinese virus, because he's a stickler for truth and accuracy. This week also, Donald and his, and his Vice Supremo Mike Dollars and Pence and Secretary for World State Mike Pompeo declared Donald was leading the world in the fight against coronavirus and thanked the world for following the US OBS great leadership with their trademark modesty. Related to all this, at least some good news over an item from last week. Remember we reported the big end of town law firms like Free Kills the Workers et al. and the True Blue Aussie Institute of the Filthiest Rich of the Filthy Rich Company directors called for the legalisation of companies trading while insolvent or suspending it being illegal as companies face difficulties. The good news? The government has agreed that's what, what's normally a crime won't be a crime, leading us to repeat... <coughs> Excuse me. To repeat that if corporate crooks trading while insolvent is bad for good old capitalism in good times, then good old capitalism is going when it's going bad, it's real smart, makes just so much sense. 
As we go to air, the Armed Robbers and Murderers Association is seeking a similar concession making their work legal or suspending it being illegal and it could be seen as compassionate in these hard times, putting a lot of people out of their misery. Finally, we can't discuss the usual in-depth items we've come to expect from the week that was climate disasters, environmental disasters, war, train killing, workers being crushed, Union smashed, all those fun, fun, fun things we normally analyse deeply, because it seems nothing else is happening in the whole world, like a disease that's wiping out lots of species of frogs. Slaughter in Syria, hardware giant banning's wages, complaining that the EBA system should be scrapped because of selfish, evil unions. Fossils Minister Keith Pitpony says we must create jobs by opening up and expanding coal mines in Queensland, that sort of thing. Guess we, the community, will just have to wait until we've glued capitalism together again. Good morning. Well, before I started to do this program, I had been thinking that uh, because of the COVID-19 virus shutdown at uh, 3CR that um, I wouldn't be able to do Solidarity Breakfast. But it was after having a chat with uh, Don Sutherland last week when he said that uh, people shouldn't hanker down. They should actually get out there and think about what they're doing and working out other ways in order to uh, be active. Uh, so I thought I'd catch up with Don. What is intrinsic to capitalism is is, is that it is um, loaded with contradictions. And those contradictions sometimes erupt in crises or enable a crisis to take on a more dramatic form uh, as a result of some uh, flammable uh, incident or set of circumstances. And, that, and this, is, this current situation is an excellent example of that because we were drifting into an economic recession. And so all, all of a sudden, out of the blue, an exotic virus emerges and we move from a drift, a steady drift that was not being reversed into recession to suddenly plunge into one. And diverts attention. In fact, I, I had the impression that people in the government would be relieved that something like this turned up. Well, they're relieved because they don't have to show up to the parliament for the next six months or so to justify their decisions. That's pretty outrageous, but that many of them would love that because they're so terrible performing there. There's such an embarrassment to themselves and the people see it. We were drifting into an economic recession and that is a crisis. That is bad news. And potentially now we are, de- we are facing the prospects of a depression. That means, you know, more than 15% unemployment, higher than that into the 20% unemployment and a government that um, really doesn't have the wherewithal to be able to deal with that. might just run through a couple of general points. At an economic crisis with its outcomes in terms of reduced numbers of hours and uh, increased unemployment was already happening. The virus pandemic accelerates it and makes it worse. Secondly, if we look at the sort of the powers that be and their capacity to deal with it, we've talked a bit about government, but we haven't said about that other big locus of power in the capital system, and that is the stock exchanges. The stock exchange ups and downs, their gyrations, started last year, well before 
COVID-19. Oh, yes. But now they're getting more extreme. In that situation, a minority of people who play in that world are making gazillions, while some, of course, lose heaps. What is emerging out of that is a number of things. Firstly, inequality is going to get worse. Secondly, there is no intention by government to deal with the problems it creates. It's just allowed to go on creating problems for the 90%. What could they do? Well, I think that's a big discussion, and um, I'm not sure that some of the ideas that um, I might have promoted in my youth are as applicable or as feasible, at least in the immediate sense, as they once might have been. But the obvious thing is that there are some of those corporations who will go under or face the prospect of going under. What would be wrong in taking them over and revitalising them on the basis of government funding to make socially useful goods, not just in the immediate, say, six to 18 months, but in the longer term in regards to reducing carbon emissions and so on. So that's the sort of thing. But the point I'm making is that it's absolutely ridiculous to have a situation where one of the major uh, locuses of power for capitalism is left ungoverned. It's allowed to do pretty well what it likes to make millions for more for fewer people. Did you know that they are passing or expecting to pass legislation that allows businesses to run when they're insolvent without it being illegal? Yes, for a limited period of time. That's part of their program, yes. That's part of their program. When you look closer at both the first and second stimulus packages, is that their philosophy is not new. It's consistent with their position, which is to enable a priority in the running of business and so on to remain in the hands of the employers. That is a particular example, and that is reflected in other ways as well. Now, what we see actually from Morrison and Trump, of course, and others, is that everything they do is about protecting that stock exchange world. The other general thing is that we're learning just how important the lowest paid part of the working class is for the daily reproduction of our society. As some of my friends know, I was in hospital recently and I just take from that scene just one example. The low paid hospital cleaner, often a migrant worker, who quietly and systematically works their assigned wards, making sure floors and surfaces are disinfected and cleaned. But they're employed by some subcontractors who get the contract on the basis of the lowest bid. So they're employed to do that incredibly important work at high rates of exploitation, and they have to do more work in less time than they did three years ago and six years ago and so on. But what I noticed in talking with them as well is that they're very proud of the work they do. They want to do it well and thoroughly, despite the pressure of them to do it quickly and faster. So we see how in these times how critical their work is, and there are so many other examples. Arguably the most significant is workers who in their daily work produce our most important necessity, food and water. Uh, the workers in the food production industry, both the production workers and those who then distribute it for sale to points of sale, and the flow of fresh water, all that must happen still. So the society still has to be re reproduced, even in the midst of crisis.
and both require electricity supply at the very least, and so on. Now, the stock exchange does not reproduce the society every day. Corporate boardrooms in private companies that exist without being in the stock exchange, they don't do that. It's the workers who do it. And we should never, ever forget that because a whole lot flows from that very simple point. The manufacturing arm of the CFMEU, they yes. put out a the people who make clothes and shoes and stuff, that part of the union, uh, yes. yeah, they put out a release saying that uh, we've talked... Yeah. We've talked to manufacturers and we're ready to retool. Just tell us what it is we need to do to yes. make essential items for uh, medical uh, situations, etc. That's another really good example of how workers and their unions know a hell of a lot more about the ins and outs of how to retool very quickly than even their employers. And their managers, not all of their managers. Some of their managers are very well informed about that and would get on board very quickly. But it's the workers who know how to do it. But their capacity to do that, their potentiality to do that, is, of course, not a factor in the thinking of this government. And there's now, there's this, now this opportunity in which various unions are bringing forward a picture to the public of not just the value of unionism uh, in a very basic sense, but also its profound capacity to mobilise workers, to unleash their potentialities, to solve problems of this nature. And we do need a very rapid reassignment of the production process. The stimuli packages are all about spending, with one exception that I'm aware of. They're all about spending. As I said, the society still has to be reproduced every day, starting with food and water, moving on into housing, etc. As the TC, uh, textile, clothing, footwear part of the CFMMEU says, into clothing. So the very basics. The exception I was talking about is that the Victorian government, in its stimulus package, has assigned $500 million to speed up, if you like, the reassignment of production facilities so that workers can move from jobs are not going to be available for a while into socially useful work in the production of the basic necessities and so on. And they're doing that in consultation with employers at one level and they're doing it in consultation with the Victorian Trades Hall Council and some of the specific unions within it. There is no sign of that. There's no sign yet of that sort of thing happening in the federal government's stimulus packages. And the interesting thing about that is that, is that already there are isolated examples of rearranging the process of production so that socially useful uh, goods are going to be produced relatively urgently. But it's, not, it, it, it's terrific because it's happening naturally out of people's potentiality in the workplace, uh, but there is no support to accelerate it in the way it needs to be accelerated to, uh, in other words, in the opposite direction to the acceleration caused by the virus into the economy. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's this sort of dislocation or oddity or a lack of uh, uh, connection between what people are genuinely experiencing and how they're trying to ameliorate it 
and yeah. this other ideologically driven business framework that disrespects people, really. It does. It does. And it says almost deliberately that we've got to keep the bosses in charge of everything. I'm not one who goes along this, with this idea that we're all in the same boat. It is a problem that all have to confront, but the confrontation of it is very different for uh, the employers and their champions in government on the one hand and the great mass of us on the other hand. And that's one of the first sort of general points that we have to keep in mind when we look at stimulus packages and other forms of government intervention. There is a tendency, especially, of course, in mainstream commentary, to uh, look at the government stimulus package in the abstract as if anything is better than not having one, which in turn invites us to believe that this government is able to change its spots in the national interest. The question which instead should ask, who does any package serve the best? And I think when you look at the two that we've got and the one that's slushing around, not yet spent $40 billion extra that the Labor Party signed up for before it agreed to um, close down the parliament, um, the first two and that one, we need to look at everything they do in terms of, well, who really gets to run the show Will it be the same old people who have brought us to the crisis in the first place? Or what opportunities does it open up for working people and their unions and other people's organisations, particularly in First Nations communities, to be able to lead the way? Right, before you uh, go on further, uh, there was a very interesting thing that I saw on the ABC News uh, channel. Uh, what it was was Albanese standing there talking, uh, followed by a an assistant secretary of the ACTU talking about the two-week uh, infectious uh, diseases leave that they think that everybody should be given if they're in uh, uh, special, a special paid leave, special. the paid special leave. Um, yes. But the thing that was interesting about it was that Albanese stood there and talked about how uh, the Prime Minister's... Uh, half an hour rambly speech really didn't seem to inform anybody about anything and it was a bit disturbing and it seemed that uh, they were dis uh, confusing the health issue with the economic issue and that uh, that wasn't something that the ALP signed up to and then they, then they he uh, handed it over to the uh, union person to talk about the leave. Now, that was the first time I've seen in a long time the uh, Labor Party officially and on the ABC uh, connecting itself so, con uh, so ex uh, publicly with the union movement. Yes, well, uh, they, they have to do that at some time. It, it's going to be very interesting to see how the Labor Party handles its period of opposition. And I don't think that their decision to go along with the closing down of Parliament and in direct association with that, give a $40 billion fund to the government to use as it sees fit. Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, that, just, that, that I think that is... Crazy. I, I remain... I, uh, my view is that that's a dereliction of duty. Well, we're on the back of the sports rorts, so what would make you think that they'd do the right thing? And I'll just reinforce it in this way. If a Labor government tried to 
govern the country on the basis of a shutdown of the parliament so that it could use $40 billion in the way it wanted to use, both the Liberal National Party opposition, if it was there, and the Murdoch media would combine to describe it as an utter Labor slush fund. Yeah, yeah, but also a little bit of a dictatorship. On another level, at the same time, up in the Northern Territory, and I know this is a little a bit of a diversion, but in the Northern Territory, uh, Origin is continuing its fracking and all their work people are continuing to move around in their cars and trucks doing whatever they're doing. And I might add, probably, potentially, de- putting in danger remote First Nations communities. Well, I don't think that's a diversion at all. Several Aboriginal leaders, uh, including the much-admired Auntie Pat Turner, are pointing out that uh, just how serious the threat of this virus would be to uh, many First Nations communities. And I see that today, for the first time, uh, well, I think the... um, the Western Australian government is leading the way and they're enforcing uh, regional lockdowns in the Pilbara and Kimberley regions for the reasons that you've described. And there will no doubt be further commentary from First Nations leaders about that at all levels of their movements. The one I've seen so far is saying that that is at last a bit of a victory in terms of the last two or three weeks of decision-making. I think the other thing about the crisis, about the way in which we go about evaluating uh, stimulus packages, to what extent do they also connect to associated crises like the climate change crisis? The climate change crisis is not going away. No. uh, In this situation. And if you keep producing packages that do not have integrated within them measures that enable steps to be taken to begin to slow down uh, the volume of carbon emissions into the atmosphere, then that means you are putting it off to 2024, three, five, who knows how long. And the longer it is put off, less likely the society will meet the 2030 targets that are essential if we are to meet the 2050 targets. The separation of the crises in these packages is very dangerous also. Sure, we have an economic crisis that is inflamed exponentially by COVID-19 pandemic, but to construct a response to that without taking into account the connections to what's going on with carbon emissions, uh, warming, and more bushfires is crazy. The terrible plight of people in bushfire-ravaged yes. regions, yes. community, and the natural world that surrounds them, that's not gone away. And yet there is nothing that I see that is special for them that should have been there in the first two packages. Various people have pointed out the government is claiming that this is a huge stimulus package. Well, it's not. At the present time, it's roughly the size of the Rudd Labor government stimulus for the 2008-9 recession. In addition, everything about it has all been about thing, money being spent. There's nothing in there about taxation. And yet the evidence is clear and people like Michael West at his webpage, uh, fantastic investigative journalism webpage, and then 
an AMWU, a retired AMWU economist in South Australia, Tony Evans, at his Facebook page, has produced data straight off of the Australian tax office that shows Australia's biggest corporations paid an average tax of just 2.6% in 2017-18. The fact that they have turned to a stimulus package, which is a Keynesian approach to the economy, that in itself is an admission that they've been governing it into disaster yeah. in any way on, and that the path they are on and the philosophy that associated with that is a failure. Um, apart from anything else, that when you look at specific some of the specific features, there's probably one or two that a decent reforming government would do as well, the doubling of unemployment benefits, for example. When you look at some of the features, they are perfectly consistent with what this government stands for. Two specific examples. It's uh, freeing up cash in small business through the support for and holding back the value of the PAYE. That particular mechanism is stacked up, loaded up, uh, so that it is a benefit to higher income workers and not to low income workers. Michelle O'Neill on Sunday night uh, tried to get a discussion and explain what that meant and was fobbed off by David Spears on the ABC program that discussed the second package. Uh, but she's right, and there is information and data that's come out today that actually demonstrates that Michelle O'Neill was right. And um, that is really reflective of the government's priorities. And even its approach, I think, to doubling the New Start or Job Seeker Allowance. The people on those queues, a big part of them would have been in income brackets that would have voted for the uh, Morrison government. A doubling is to make sure that they keep doing that. Mm. What we would say is that a doubling is necessary for, uh, and you know, you could even say more than that, of course, uh, that ought to be done just out of the sheer humanity of the requirement to do it. What we haven't talked about though, Annie, and we should, we on the left, and all the different components of the left have got to work together to come up with an alternative approach. What would a genuine left reforming or better government do or should do that would be very different to what the Morrison government is doing? We can't just complain about what they are doing. Uh, we have a responsibility to uh, go further than just complaining. And I think we get clues of that in terms of what's already happening. Uh, the ACTU's work on maintaining wages and so on is particularly important. I think they've done a good job on that. Three or four different demands that are important, although I am very worried about where they're going to head with the uh, uh, annual wage review, which is all about increasing the wages for those very people we were discussing at the front end who actually are the most important in terms of reproducing our society. And then we go on to the taxing issue that we've discussed. The left ought to have a position on funding of stimulus packages by taxing the rich, making the rich pay, to use an old slogan. And then it goes into the production, the very important area of the development of the productive capacity focused on what is most socially useful and needed in the short and medium term and into the longer term when it comes to climate change. And that means integrating. We would integrate in our program the ideas in democratic just transition or Green New Deal, whatever you want to call it. I think we have the start of an alternative policy program and then that invites just what should be the approach 
to actually uh, struggling for it so that ultimately we start to win instead of being at the fringe and continuing to complain only we can start to struggle for what is right in front of us as real possibilities. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Hopefully it hasn't been too difficult, too many glitches in our first remote program for Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, Keep your chin up, keep fighting, and uh, you'll hear from me next week. Sitting on the city side of lonely The sun is shining in my eyes My thoughts forever turning to you only As if that should be a surprise You're in my heart or you're in my mind Sometimes you're even in my way You're in my life Or you're in my dream But you're still not mine Or so it seems When rains are falling peaceful On a city night It brings you ever gentle To my mind Somewhere in the traffic and the neon I see the warming love in your eyes You're in my heart or you're in my mind Sometimes you're even in my way You're in my life or you're in my dream you're still not mine or so it I've been away from you so long I wanted to be free Now at last I read